This is Gareth Helm, author of The Marketing Leader's Code. Unlock your potential, learn the secrets of successful marketing leadership, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Gareth Helm to talk about his book, The Marketing Leader's Code, Unlock Your Potential, Learn the Secrets of Successful Marketing Leadership. Gareth Helm has over 30 years experience in marketing businesses all around the world and half of this time working in the leadership team. Starting out as a graduate trainee with Unilever in the Middle East, he went on to become the marketing leader or advisor on a wide variety of brands in different stages of their life cycle, from new startups to some of the world's largest and favorite brands, including McDonald's and Mars. Gareth was recognized as one of the top 100 most effective marketers in 2021 by Marketing Week and as a fellow of the Marketing Academy, a community of over 200 senior marketing leaders globally. And interesting fact, Midway through Gareth's marketing career, he found out he was dyslexic. Gareth, congratulations on the Marketing Leaders Code, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So there are a number of very uh, successful, very famous, very smart people who were dyslexic, including Richard Branson, Albert Einstein, Pablo Picasso, and possibly even George Washington. So you are in very good company. Explain what dyslexia is and, and how it may have actually benefited you. Well, uh, for, for me, uh, dyslexia means I think differently. Um, and I think while some people will go ABC uh, on a, uh, a kind of classical look through a problem, work it through stage by stage, I quite often will go A to, to, D, to D to F to G to Z. And I kind of look at things in a slightly different way. Um, and I think it's been, it's funny, through my career, I have found it hard to see and see how other people are processing things. I find it quite hard to read things. So it's actually quite ironic that I've actually written a book. It's like, wow, how did that happen? <laughs> um, but I just look at things differently. And I find actually uh, lots of text very hard to read, but I kind of, I slowly work through it. I can process things, but I find patterns. And I think that has been huge be valuable for me because in my career I've been able to kind of look at things in a different way and as a marketeer I found solutions which other people haven't seen instantly so I think actually dyslexia is a blessing and the reason I found it through my daughter so there she was doing some dyslexic testing and uh, she was putting like these yellow cards over the, some words to read and the, the, I was going, wow, that page I can read it now. And it was like me and her together on this journey. And it just, it, it, it was interesting for me to discover it. I, I had created systems and behaviors to protect myself and mean I could um, operate effectively. But uh, yes, I discovered it not so, not so long ago. 
Well, this book is very different, and I'm glad you wrote it, and we're going to talk about it. But I uh, just had one question. Have you heard of the dyslexic agnostic insomniac? No. He stayed up all night wondering if there was a dog. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Changing the subject, though, I saw with interest that you studied chemistry in college. Is that right? I know. Yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So lots of logic. I love, I love, love a bit of logic. That's great. Yeah. And I, I mentioned that because there seem to be an awful lot of marketing books, or at least noticeable to me, authors who studied science, technology, engineering, uh, or math, and, and even some, uh, <laughs> some who went to law school. And they're the happiest people in the world because they're no longer practicing law. So anyway, I thought I thought that was very interesting, and of course, it ties into the idea that marketing has gone from madmen to to mathmen. Also, I noticed uh, that the book is beautifully illustrated, and I later saw on Amazon that the illustrator is Sophie Helm. Is she any relation to Gareth Helm? She is my daughter, oh. so uh, it's, it's in the family. And actually, my wife was my copywriter. Oh, uh, so I, I had my publisher, but I, I also, because of my dyslexia, I needed an independent pair of eyes just to go through it. So it's a family business, this, uh, and it's wonderful. My daughter was just really excited to do it, and I said, "No, please do it." And she's done. I mean, I, it was really nice to let, let her have a go at it, and just and she was just brilliant. She's uh, she's fantastic, and she's in uh, school. She's in still in university somewhere. Uh, she has literally graduated about three months ago, oh. so she's just popped out, and she just did this alongside, and it was just you know, it's on her CV now. I said, look, you know, you've illustrated a book, you've got to put that in your CV. Yes. Uh, so yes, yeah, she's put it, but you know, good for her. And I thought yeah. it's like nice for her, and and she got into my brand, and she's kind of she now tells me, you know. You know, Dad, you've got to use black, red, and gray, and white. These are your brand colors. And it's yeah. like, uh, you know, it's, it's, she's really into it, so it's brilliant. Yeah. And as my daughter would say, listen to your children, Dad. So I should thank Abigail Dixon, author of The Whole Marketer, for introducing the two of us. I will include a link to my interview with her about that book in this episode's website page at uh, marketingbookpodcast.com. And speaking of uh, Abby's book, it's one of maybe fewer than 10 out of 450 that have been on the show that are specifically about how to be a more effective, successful marketers. And what I mean, not to take away from the other books, most of the other books are about how to do some aspect of marketing or sales or or some sort of trends. And over the years, I've developed a presentation just for marketers, like it's a marketing-only audience, and I, I update it continuously. And it's about basically how to be the kind of marketer every CEO wants to hire and can't afford to lose. And I reference those handful of books, like The Whole Marketer or The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader by Barda and Barwise, which we'll talk about again, uh, with, and, and is quoted in your book, and Marketing Flexology by Angelina Jasper, Sway by Christina Del Villar, and Standout Marketing by Stacey Danheiser. And there's a few other books, so I wasn't able to mention everybody. But your book, is now going to be on center stage with that small cool. group of excellent books for, for future versions of that uh, presentation. And speaking of Thomas Barda, uh, he's mentioned on the cover of your book, and he uh, also blurbed it, and he said, Gareth's unique toolkit will prove hugely valuable for every CMO who seeks more impact. So I just have to say, when I saw Thomas Barda mentioned on the cover of your book, you had me at Thomas Barda. It worked. 
<laughs> well, Thomas is a great man. He is. He's a great he is. man. He's and great. I've I've kept up the conversation, the friendship with him. I know he's working on a couple other books that are, uh, I'm sure, going to be spectacular. So it, it, I knew this was going to fit in. I want to quote from um, page VII to get started here. You write, do you want the top job in marketing and to be successful long-term? Are you a business leader wanting to get the most out of marketing? Are you an ambitious marketer wanting to be a future marketing leader? Are you a recruiter looking to improve your marketing leader recruitment success rates? The Marketing Leaders Code is a leadership book for marketing leaders written by marketing leaders. Much has been published about the challenges marketing leaders face, but very little has been done to prepare marketers for the leadership role and to be successful. This book fills this gap by distilling the activities of successful marketing leaders into a simple framework and providing diagnostic assessments, real-life case studies, and a toolkit of tactics to build capability. And then I want to quote one other place from page X. And when I say X, I mean 10, not Twitter. Elon, call me. This time I'll pick up. So you write, as a fledgling marketer starting out, I always dreamed of one day getting a company's top job in marketing, coming up with the strategy, making the decisions, spending the budget. Eventually, I managed it. I became the marketing leader at Innocent Drinks, then Mars and Zoopla. I was moving up in the marketing world. Then I became the chief marketing officer for McDonald's in the UK and Ireland. And as I sat behind my desk after a strong set of business results and positive year in review, I could finally say, I'm loving it. it. Gareth, what happened next? Well, so... As you say, I had... Um, you were the king of the world! I was there. I was going, I'm loving it. And actually, behind my desk, I had a big wall with a big M on it, a big yellow M and a big red background. I was going, this is it. I'm loving it. Um, and so I thought that life was kind of sweet. But um, the reality was, three months later, I lost my job. And it's like, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> and it was... I don't mean a, to laugh. You know, I'm sorry. It, it, no, but no, but it's like, it was like, wow. And uh, it's kind of, it's one thing to kind of do your year end review and hit your performance. But actually, it made me realize I had not created enough connection with my boss or with my C suite. But literally, I lost my job. Uh, now, at the time, uh, there was kind of wider sort of transformation going on uh, within the business. But that was kind of more like the veneer, if I was honest, we put out to the outside world about why I was going. Um, but deep down, I thought, you know, it's something wasn't working here. And, uh, you know, to, to suddenly know you've gone. So literally, that's like, what, a year and a half in or something like that I had gone. Uh, so very, very short tenure. And it got me thinking, I was thinking, like, what the hell happened? Um, and that's what was the impetus to the book, because I then landed a job uh, with HomeServe, big global company. Uh, I had a global CMO role now. Uh, I was working with 12 C-suites around the world. And I thought, I am not going to let that happen again. I don't know what happened there, but it didn't happen. Um, whilst I've been in all these previous companies have been great, suddenly it had all gone wrong at McDonald's. And I just thought, I need to understand this. Um and actually, what I then did was I then talked to a lot of my peers who actually almost started like, like laughing at me and saying, Gareth, has this not happened to you before? And all of them had pretty much all faced some sort of, you know, 
kind of trauma in their career whereby it just hadn't happened and they'd got bounced out quite quickly. And then I got into doing more reading and I actually found out more about like, you know, the tenure of CMOs is really short. It's about two years. And that just got me thinking like, what a terrible waste of time. I mean, what, what on earth is going on if loads of, of CMOs are getting bounced and the average tenure of a CMO or sort of senior t- CMO is two years. That just felt wrong. And I was kind of like Mr. Angry, and I was going like, I want to do something about this. And so I literally started thinking about what what are the core skills you need to be super effective. Um, and that's where the book, the book effectively started. And I then built it out from that point. But it was like, this happened. And I thought, right, let me start writing about this and trying to figure out what are those skills you really need to be super effective. So Gareth, it's time for some bad news for the listeners. And what I mean by that is it's time to scare the hell out of the marketers who are listening. Now, <laughs> however, many of them already know what what we're about to talk about. But you talked uh, in the book about uh, Kimberly Whitler, who is the author of Positioning for Advantage, and I'll include a link to her interview uh, on this episode's website page. She uh, is a professor at the University of Virginia, prolific writer. And you write, I reflected on my experiences, read around the subject, and talked to my marketing peers. There turned out to be a large collection of published material explaining the challenges marketing leaders face. Kimberly Whitler's The Trouble with CMOs which was in uh, Harvard Business Review, summarized an underlying issue. Quote, something is going very wrong in the relationship between CEOs and CMOs. 80% of CEOs don't trust or are unimpressed by their CMO. In comparison, just 10% of the same CEOs feel the same way about their CFOs and CIOs. And again, this is actually part of that presentation I've done where I, I explain there are a number of books that talk about this big disconnect. And I'll, another one that she's written about, Kim's written about, is that there's a very small number of boards of director members who have any marketing background. So it's really, uh, really troubling. And I guess you've probably run into any, anything else about why this perception is of marketers? Well, I think the thing for me was, um, so as you say, Kimberly has written some great work and it's and it is fascinating when you start digging into it because there's Kimberly's work. There's the Marketing Society in the UK writes about this. We've got Spencer Stewart, one of the biggest recruitment firms in the world, recording, actually recording tenure every year. It's, it's amazing that they even go to the bother of saying, oh, this year it's higher, this year it's lower. But pretty much it's always around two years and it's always the lowest. Right. Uh, so it's always – it's just like, wow, everyone knows about this thing and it's kind of happening. So, But we're not doing much much about it. Um one thing I found, though, interesting was um, PhD Worldwide. Uh, they um, actually analyzed the marketer's job back in, I think it was 2011, and analyzed the job in 2021, a 10-year gap. And basically, in that gap, the, the job had changed by 51%, you know, massively different. And of course, we know, you know, digital has hugely changed uh, jobs. But I think when you drill it all down, it's like, I just don't think most CEOs get it, understand the job. And I don't mean this in a, in a negative way. It's just the job has become so complicated. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. job has become so vast. And it's kind of an arrogant CMO who expects their CEO to understand exactly what they do. And I think because it's changing so, so vastly, um, it creates a lack of trust. Uh, and you don't see change like that happening in, say, finance or sales or operations. It's just not happening. Those are much more kind of stable roles 
But marketing has just massively changed. And we're about to change again with AI and <laughs> Web3. I mean, we've got this constant change. And I think it just creates this this distrust. And you don't, you know, what, what is my marketeer doing? Um, and and I think, and hence why we have, the, it, it's, a, it's a difficult world and it's hard for marketeers. Um, but I get it. I mean, as I said, when I've kind of gone into it, I kind of go, okay, I get it. People don't get the job. And hence why with the Marketing Leaders Code, I'm just trying to explain it more and kind of make it really simple and make it really clear for everyone to kind of get, this is what the job is. These are all the factors in the job to be successful. Um, and both for a CEO, an HR director, or a, a CMO, everyone can look at it and everyone can analyze things and everyone can have a kind of open, coherent conversation around the job um, and just try to kind of break down this confusion or this lack of trust. Yes. And your book brings to mind a cartoon I saw years ago that showed a handful of wolves on a cliff howling at the moon. And the two in the back, one turns to the other and says, yes, but are we having an impact? And so this book gets past the anger that people have. And they say, you know, they should know that. I hear that a lot from marketers, you know, thinking, God, I can't believe they don't get it. They don't get it. That you got to you got to move on. You got to move on, and this book will really help you. I just want to put a pen in this uh, in this part where you say losing my job was part of a wider spread problem. But where are the guidebooks and advice services to support marketers in this challenging position? Most senior marketers dust themselves down and go again at a new role. I was the same. But as I prepared, I decided to pick apart my experiences and the experiences of my peers and wider industry experts to create a framework for success. So, all right, let's say somebody's gotten a new job. In fact, you write about that on, uh, I think it's page three. You say, so you're the top dog in marketing. Congratulations. You get the job. Sweet. Now for the tough bit. You need to realize the role is often misunderstood and sometimes undervalued by many of your colleagues in the leadership team. So there's a lot of change that's going on. I think a lot of listeners are going to know about that. But where do you think the perception still is of management towards the marketers? Like they are, uh, they have some sort of list of winning lottery ticket numbers, or you know, they uh, they're simply there to help promote and and shout about their company's products and services. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I mean, to be to be, it's an interesting conversation because I I think marketing's role at the top table has has diminished if i was honest um i think there was a time when we were very kind of kind of kind of unite unified with let's say the ceo and the cfo and in many companies i deal with nowadays i see the cmos you know dropping down behind the tech team the product team it's like kind of they got the, they're the, the fifth person to eat at the table it's it's um and they've become you're either like uh you, you you know you're going back to the days of you know you are the people doing comms you're doing the tv adverts uh you're just bringing in some leads for us but you're not very strategic it's just like you're doing a bit of communication stuff and it's interesting how you know sadly that that can happen um but that's really when the marketing team is not connecting to the tech team to the product team to the sales team and actually you know marketing i always believe is the absolute kind of heartbeat and center of a business and a great cmo is plugged in to you know to all these different areas and they're working collaboratively with the tech team they're coming up with a tech roadmap and it's like you know I don't know, sometimes marketing kind of closes in on itself mm -hmm. and it just thinks like we are, we are these sort of specialist people, but we kind of sitting in that ivory tower 
is not the place to be. And it's like, how do you kind of work with your peers and work with the wider industry? But uh, but I, I agree, mar- marketing can be kind of you know paint by numbers if you're not careful, uh, mm-hmm. which is the worst place for it to be. Yes. Very interesting on page seven. I want you to explain this. You, you write, as it relates to the marketing position, with seniority comes less feedback. Yeah. Well, so I, I just find, it's funny, I think kind of uh, it's easier to give feedback when you're more junior. And I just think that when people go up through the ladder and up through roles, uh, I just think people find it harder and harder to really give honest feedback. And I think with seniority, people become almost like kind of locked into their boxes and they just don't don't give it to you. And uh, I, I've been through many companies when I go like, I can see some slightly weird behavior going on and I think they're doing it because they want this to happen, but why don't they tell me? Um, but it's interesting, it does happen. And I, you know, again, I, I was kind of reading a little bit around that and it's, it's, there's a sort of certain arrogancy in terms of people as they get to the top, they get kind of set in their ways and they just don't, don't like to give or receive feedback. But of course, it's, it's what we all need. We you know, desperately crave it and it makes us better people. Yes, it seems like such a cautionary tale that the more senior you become as a marketer, the lack of feedback doesn't mean there isn't any. And you, you could get blindsided like uh, Gareth Helm was at, uh, at McDonald's. So as it relates to the marketing leadership role, you touch on a few things that are uh, very interesting. You write that successful marketers require exceptional internal and external communication skills. And then you quote from uh, Barda and Barwise, the 12 powers of a marketing leader that I mentioned, as it relates to the value creation zone or the V zone. So for folks that haven't read that book, talk about what they mean by this, this value creation zone. Well, I think the thing is it's a combination between trying to find a sweet spot between what the company does and what consumers want. And it's like kind of, you know, entering into that zone is where you kind of find the sweet, the sweet, the sweet spot. And I think it's just trying to you know, marry – I mean, it sounds – obvious but it's trying to marry these two sides together i think quite often people become very internal in their business and just not connecting firmly enough with what customers really want and it's, it is kind of understanding that and kind of putting yourself into that sweet spot in the middle and actually when you find the connections that's when the magic starts happening two other things i want to ask about you, you go on to write that successful marketers have a skill set of polar opposites explain what you mean mm-hmm. there well, um, it's what Mark Ritson calls bothism, uh, and I kind of, uh, and I think it's also, um, you know, if, if you think about, um, I was going to say, Jim Collins uh, is the genius of the and. It's basically uh, you've got to be creative, but you've also got to be analytical. Um, you've got to challenge. You've got to unify. There's, the whole time, um, marketers have these extremes, and I think that's that actually is the beauty of the job because. You know, how many jobs are there or kind of sectors where you can be kind of really, really creative and really imaginative, but at the same time, be analytical and data centric. And I think this is just, you know, I, I figured this out as I started deconstructing the job because I, when I, you know, here I was, lost my job, I think, oh, what the hell? And I basically went through all the things I've done, which have been kind of great, all the things I've done, which were less good. I then talked to my peers and just tried to create a structure. And in, in trying to create that structure, you could start seeing, God, you know, we, we do have this, these extremes. We, we, we sometimes have to be on the left, sometimes on the right. And that's what makes the job difficult. But if you understand that and create a framework, you can start saying, okay, this, this is how I operate well. I'm sometimes 
I tend to bias more to the left here, and sometimes I bias more to the right here. But that those continuums and differences vary significantly from job to job. So some jobs need you to be kind of really analytical, um, and other jobs want you to be kind of more creative. Some jobs want you to be very much focused upon conversion, low down uh, the kind of the recruitment funnel. Other jobs want you to be at the very top. And it's, it's really this continuum. And actually, as I said, when I stood, stood back, I could say, okay, we've got all these extremes. How do I put this all into some structure? Because on the, outs- on the outside looking in, it looks like chaos. It looks like bloody hell. We could do so much different weird stuff. But what actually do you need to do to do, be really brilliant? And where do people need to sit on these continuums? You mentioned bias, and you write that successful marketers often have a skills bias linked to their personality. Is that meant as a a warning like don't don't get too comfortable with what your strengths are look for uh where you may have a like again a blind side well that interestingly came out it was it didn't i didn't actually go in and think that was going to be true um because i kind of went in there and i just tried to be really objective and think well what are the factors uh which are really important so i kind of created this 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 uh, model and then i was testing the model and actually it ended up you could see certain types of people, and this is only when I talked to them afterwards, certain types of people were biasing some areas. So in the model, there's, for example, um, people who like to unify also tend to be quite supportive, um, and they tend to like more consistency. People who were more creative tended to be more longer term. And you could sort of see these connections. And this is kind of like, that was kind of interesting to me. And it almost was signaling that actually people have there was certain bias in terms of people's own personal um, kind of makeup. Um, I mean, I refer a little bit to like Myers-Briggs because Mm -hmm. you can be a marketeer going into this enormous world of marketing, um, but you may end up being a slightly more personality-wise, a bit more analytical. And you can live very happily in the marketing world in this more analytical side. But likewise, you could be a marketer coming in and being right over on the creative side. Um, And and I mean that as a marketing leader, you can be in different levels. And I think that's a personal style thing as well. So whilst I I did kind of logically create this list and thought, this is, these are the key factors, this is it. I then noted that actually, when you bring it into people, people do have a, a kind of a kind of bias one way or other and that's and that's actually driven them as a uh, from a career point of view so from my personal level i come in and i'm much more kind of about brands i'm about long term i'm about creative that's my kind of that's what connects with me most now I, I i still do the analytical stuff i still am into teamwork and unity and consistency but i still have a preference i still have an area which i naturally bias to and that's just me and my makeup you know, come back to my dyslexia. I kind of, I think in pictures, I'm creative and I, and I kind of like to create models mm-hmm. and that is my makeup. And that as a, as a marketing leader, it does influence me and influences my code, uh, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but it does influence how I then operate as a marketing leader. But it also means that areas where I'm weaker, I've got choices because I can either make myself stronger or I can bring, bring people in to fill in those gaps if those gaps need to be filled. And not all companies need them to be filled, but at least you can understand your profile. You can marry it against a job and say, okay, you know, it fits perfectly or there's a bit of a gap. And if there's a gap, what do I do, what do, I do about it? Yes. So there's a 12-question assessment that's in the book. 
And then you've also got it on your, your, your website as well, where people can go and, and, and take it. I believe that's the, that's the free one. To explain what the 12-question the self-assessment is as it relates to uh, for the marketers, but also what's interesting is, is for an organization to take. In other words, people yeah. who aren't even in marketing, but it starts to set up their expectations of what they think it's important. Yeah. So I think every marketer, I think it's good to understand your skills personally. So this is all about you honestly looking at yourself and saying, okay, how do I how do I really rank on these areas? Now, in the book, there is uh, it's a really twelve questions. It's really simplistic, but online there's a longer version which is sixty questions, much more comprehensive, um, and it kind of gives you a much more truer sense. But what it tells you then, it kind of tells you, okay, of these um, skills, which I call anchor factors, um, how do I perform on those anchor factors? You know, where am I strong? Where am I weak? Um, and it goes through from um, the, the six different levels. Is, there's one which is called A, which is anchor. Oh, sorry, anchor. A, which is about ambition, which is all about your, your CEO. It then goes into N, which is network, which is about the C-suite. C, which is cap- capability. It goes through and it drills into these different areas. And you get a map. You kind of get a map of this is how how you look. This is how you look as a marketeer. And that's very much you. But at the same time, what's quite useful is to And it's get not the a same grade map. though, it's just an assessment. Here's here's where you oh, are. It is. And actually everybody is different. Right. And it's not like it's not trying to say, oh, everyone's gonna get five out of five. It's not. And actually no job requires level five of everything. Every job is different. Some mm-hmm. jobs need you to be you know, a, a big whopping great five on, for example, uh, I don't know, short-term results or something. Who knows? But it's like there are there <laughs> are surprising. Yeah, there are there are grades of way of of what you need to deliver, and, and, and sometimes you might only need to be a one, and that's absolutely fine. You could be a one here and a five there, but it kind of assesses you in terms of what I believe are the key factors to be successful. Now that happens. You can do that personally, but also you can do that for the job. And so you can give the same questionnaire to your CEO or a stakeholder, you know, maybe a marketing nerd, but somebody who kind of gets marketing um, and they can assess it. And this is particularly useful, I think, when you're joining a new company, because you get complete transparency about what people think the job is. Now, they will say, this is how I think the job is. Now, they may be right or wrong, but it's pretty useful to know what they are thinking at that point and where you stack up against that because are there big gaps? I mean, they may say, oh, you only need to score a one in terms of uh, analytical. And you go, oh, that's really unusual. And it may well be because there's a, a really, really good analyst in the team and who's amazing. And therefore, they're saying, well, that's, that's why. Um, or they may say, you need to be really, really assertive with the team. And again, why is that? And it may be because the team is really struggling. There's some characters in the team which need to go. But it's quite good to get the assessment done. And in some ways, I think for a CEO to do it or an HRD to do it, it's a good exercise. It gets them to think properly about the role. And you know what do you what do you really need in this role? And I think quite often there are lots of buzzwords put into recruitment briefs, which all sound great, but they miss the pure foundations of the fundamentals about relationships. Because when I do the, the list, the top ones I kind of I reeled them off a little bit. There was you know the relationship with the CEO, the relationship with the C-suite. Those are so important, and particularly when you go from a, a kind of a more junior marketing role into the the top dog CMO, you know marketing leadership position, you've really got to understand 
what the CEO and the C-suite are expecting from you because, you know, getting those relationships work, working is the only way you can make an impact. And this helps you understand what they're expecting. And you can look about look at your own style and, and where the gaps are. So you can start seeing little gaps about, you know, where do you need to grow? Where do you need to change? But you can then decide as to how do you respond to that. Um, and I found it particularly useful myself. I mean, I've a number of CEOs, I've helped them write recruitment briefs just by doing this exercise, yes. just going through it. And and they said, well, I'd never really thought about that before. I go, well, this is what marketeers do. And you can have a conversation then around the real breadth of marketing and actually bring them up to speed with what marketing does. Yes. And it's, just, it's quite eye-opening for some people because I said earlier, you know, it's changed massively. And I said, well, this is what a CMO does. This is what a CDO does. This is what this is what you know, growth people, this is what we do. Um, how much of that do you want them to do? Is that important or not? Is someone else doing that? If they are doing it, that's great. But, you know, that really influences the brief. Because if you've got someone else doing that, you don't get someone else coming in who also does that. Let's let's figure this out. So that's what, it just opens up a conversation. And I think that having these, having more transparency, having more conversations uh, gives everybody greater clarity in the long run it will give people longer tenure in the job because they kind of get over these bumps in the road. And quite often it's just simple miscommunications, yes. misunderstandings. And hey, let's have this open conversation up front. Yes. And I think that the there's a there's often a difference between what maybe a CEO says versus what they really what they really want. And this can help to peel back some of those layers. The other thing, and I mentioned this earlier when I was quoting from the beginning about the recruiters. It seems like if I were a recruiter and I were trying to find and place uh, marketers and I was commissioned by a company to find a marketer, the first thing I do is have them do this. To It would just make them so much more successful at finding the right kind of person. And then all the candidates could take it as well. Well, and I think, I mean, you're, you're, you're absolutely bang on because I almost look at this as like a pre-screener. It's mm-hmm. like, and I think in some ways it is what a very good recruitment consultant does so a very good recruitment consultant should be able to read between the lines and challenge the ceo on the brief they should be able to do it but this gives them a framework to have that conversation but it almost like pre-screens and says right so just so we're really in the same place here this is what you're really wanting you know you need five out of five here you need three out of five here you need two out of five this is what you want and this is how you want them to operate in the c-suite how you want them to operate with you how you want to operate with their team it kind of it just it, it removes all bias it kind of brings it down to here are some the hard facts of what that person needs to do and as i said i think it cuts through um and it makes it makes life more transparent makes it clearer uh, as i said it, i think it's like a pre-screener Absolutely. So let's talk about the the anchor factors, and then we I'll maybe ask you a question or two about each one, and then a little bit about your career because you you are an exact ex- excellent example of some of the things you talk about here. Uh, and then at the end, we can just briefly touch on the on 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 the code. You started to talk about how you're, I think, a, an E, right? More of a, an explorer type, long term strategy person. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it's. Um yeah, I mean, uh, I, I kind of, it's funny, I started my, my career with Unilever, and I think it was kind of classic brand building in a sense. They were, you know, this is back in the the 90s, wow. Um, so it's going back, and it's the time, you know, digital was just starting, but there was really classic brand building. That's almost built into my DNA. Right, um, right. And the whole psychology of consumers and people. So that kind of, yeah, that's my that's my backbone. Okay, well, we'll get to that in just a minute, but let's, let's go through the anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, quickly. One thing I want to mention, Gareth, is that 
There are a surprising number of listeners to the Marketing Group podcast who don't speak English as a first language, and I'm always so impressed. And I've gotten to meet some of them, and what's more interesting or, or worrisome to me is that I have actually heard from listeners who are learning to speak English, and they're listening <laughs> to this podcast, which puts enormous pressure on me. I, it's like suddenly having children, like, oh gosh, now I'm responsible. So, I want to explain what... Uh, this one word is that we're going to talk about homeostasis, which is the tendency toward a relatively stable equilibrium between interdependent elements, right? The, pretty close yep. there? Okay. So let's see here. I want to quote from page 25. So in order to understand the marketing leader's code, you need to start with understanding the six pairs of anchor factors. These are the behaviors and competencies that feed into the four genres called code, which are connector, operator, disruptor, and explorer that I just mentioned. Every marketing leadership role and every marketer will have some of each of the anchor factor pairs. The emphasis will vary from role to role and marketer to marketer, with some having a higher bias towards one or the other of the pairs or both. What is important is knowing which anchor factors you bring to the job and what the job is requiring. What is sacrosanct and essential? What is accepted as needing to evolve and change? And what areas give you genuine freedom to evolve and, and try out new things? Okay, so anchor is ambition, A for ambition, which means, I'll read from uh, page 28, understands the natural homeostasis and works with the CEO to bring their business ambition to life and push the business forward, tests new ideas and helps change areas which are suboptimal and reinforces areas which need consistency. So explain what you mean when you write that the ambition anchor, anchor factor uh, considers the business's homeostasis and the CEO's plan. And I'm particularly interested in this one because sometimes it's really hard to get feedback or to discern what it is the CEO wants. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, so to your point, homeostasis for me is the kind of the business's culture and kind of day-to-day -day behaviors because every business just has a way of working i mean they just basically they operate and they have like a, a kind of muscle memory about how they respond in certain situations they just have a style this is the way we've done it and they'll, they'll keep on doing it that way and i think it's really whether they'll admit it or not right oh completely agree it's just it's just it's taken time to to evolve it's they got used to it and it's like kind of it's the way we've done it it's the way we've always done it why we change it so they will always stick to that style and actually sometimes you can nudge it but unless you keep on it it will slide back to that kind of that approach um and i think that you know anybody in the marketing role you know you need to understand that particularly if you join a new company what is that homeostasis what is the kind of the, the culture the operating modus operandi and then it's to, to understand with your CEO, what are they wanting to do? You know, what do you want to do? This is, the, this is the way the business is running right now. This is what we do things. This is the way we operate. Um, you know, are you are you happy with that? I mean, uh, what, what areas are you, lo are you looking to change and challenge? And, and I, when I say ambition, and I go back to the point earlier on, there are extremes here because under ambition, there is two extremes. One is change. Um, you know, what is the CEO's change agenda? What does he want to do differently? And there's also the other extreme is consistency. What are we going to protect? What are we going to protect and nurture and grow and just hold on to and keep that going? 
And I think, you know, every business will have a, a balance of the two. And actually, a lot of CEOs will come in and say, right, I'm ripping us up and we're going over here. This is the direction of travel. We're changing. We're going here, 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 here. Um, and and in that case, that, they would be more on the change end of the continuum. Absolutely. Okay. And, uh, and I've been in businesses where it has been all about change. And, uh, you know, I was with one business, uh, a tech business, and over about a four-year period, we bought 10 companies. We were constantly in change, and that had a very kind of profound influence on my job and how I operated and how I behaved with my team and what I did. That was, and that was very different uh, if I compare it to, say, Mars. I mean, Mars was very much about consistency. They had an amazing operating model, and the way they structured their work was very, very different. And that was much more about consistency and, and how can we optimize this so we were kind of always better than the average. I mean, we were a mm -hmm. big company, but we always need to be a little bit better. But it was like, you know, we protect these things, we nurture these things, we grow these things, we, you know, we, we, we look for consistency. And that's very much influenced by the CEO. The CEO can have a massive impact upon homeostasis because what does the CEO really want to do? You know, what does the CEO want to challenge and change? Um, and what does the CEO want to keep consistent? And as a marketeer, I think dovetailing into that and finding quick ways to rapidly test new approaches, new thinking, and help uh, he or she develop their thinking and actually kind of put it into practice is really important. So that dovetailing in um, on ambition, on change versus consistency, really getting the grips with what they're trying to do and being their partner. Uh, because, you know, the marketeer, I always say, I always believe they're right at the heart of the business. So what, how can the marketeer then help influence that change for them or reinforce the consistency and actually make the consistency even better? So how do we kind of make those areas which are great even better? You know, right off the bat, that starts to pull the marketer closer to the, the strategic table, I would think. But particularly, uh, I would think for CEOs who, who don't have uh, a clearly articulated plan, have you... Have you seen that? Are there are there uh, a fair number of CEOs who haven't really thought through these things or don't really have a plan? Well, I think I think most CEOs coming in have a have a sort of plan. So the people I've met, but then some of it is kind of it happens by chance. But I think in a sense, the more you can help them lay down a, a clearer strategy, the better. Now, obviously, things will change, but you know, I think the you know coming in, having a clear purpose, having clear objectives, you know, landing your your mission. Um, but very quickly helping them make sense of, you know, the culture and actually what does that mean to the culture is really important because if you, if they really are on a change agenda, they need to understand what does that really mean internally because some things are very hard to change. Um, and actually as a member of the C-suite, you've got to help the CEO land it. You've got to be their, their, their wing person and help them help their thinking land. And I think the marketeer is, is the best place person because as I said they are connected to the whole business they're connected with customers and they can actually make sense of what the the CEO's agenda might be uh, and actually help shape and influence it yes let's put another pen in this you're right this anchor factor is understanding the company's culture and purpose getting into the mind of your CEO and finding your place to make an impact by managing change with consistency let's jump to N in anchor which is network and you write navigates the leadership team effectively and ensures the right discussions are held and the right activity gets done skillful at knowing when to challenge <laughs> and when to create unity for the wider business benefit 
explain what you mean when you write that marketers need to be brave, and I don't know any marketer who has been fired for being brave. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think we are a lot of the conscience of the business. We are also we are so customer focused. We need we need to bring the big discussions to the boardroom, to the C suite, to the leadership teams. We need to bring them in, and I think that's our that's our role. And I think sometimes we need to kind of put in front of people the uncomfortable stuff and be honest. I mean, we you know we've got to hold the business to its strategy, hold the business to its performance, but also hold it against you know what consumers want and what consumers are saying. And I just think you know some. In the the melee of a C-suite leadership team, some people can just fall silent, and um, I think uh, that's unacceptable. Uh, I think actually, particularly for marketeers, they have got to be brave. They've got to say the truth. And I think, as I said, we are so central to a business, so central to customers that we know for us to come forward, uh, it's important. As I said, I genuinely don't know anyone who's been fired for saying saying it as it is and actually i think you get admired for it and i think yes. the trouble is in a lot of businesses you kind of get into this uh you know hi- hypo syndrome of highest paid person everyone goes quiet because the boss is speaking but i think marketers need to stand up and they need to have a voice and um you know it's you know you've got to stick your neck out sometimes and i think if i think about myself when i have stuck my neck out and i've really believed in something and i back myself on it you know if I've got that belief, people listen to me actually as well because they kind of they know I'm saying it from the head and the heart. Uh, but we, you know, I think marketers have to be brave. They have to put the neck out there and say it. And as I said, no one I know has been fired for for being uh, passionate and honest. But as long as they've got the facts, you know, you've got to say it. You've got to be out there and, and talk about it at the top table. Yes, and you talk about customers and customers are a very important audience but i would argue that your most as a marketer your most important audience is internal oh of <laughs> course uh, yeah and that's why i kind of say it's central to the business because you can read marketers can read the hum of the business as well yes. and uh you know it's funny for me recently i've done some work and um you know there's these niggly issues which we weren't tackling and we were kind of ignoring and it's like the yeah Cut a long story short, it was a it was a customer centered issue. We weren't really kind of leaning into, but when we did lean into it and solved it, the the heartbeat of the business lifted because everyone goes, "Yes, they've made the decision. They finally tackled this issue which we've been wanting to do for ages because we want to get back to doing it this way." So you know, but that's um, you know, as I said, you're right. It is about the internal heartbeat of the business. It is about how things are working in terms of customer demand. But it, you know, marketers are very well placed to read the business and the and the customers. Yes. I just think that a lot of marketers forget that. And that talks about that ivory tower or cocoon that you were, you mentioned earlier. Let's jump to C in anchor, capability. And you write that uh, the, the previous two factors we just talked about have been about upward and sideways influence and effectiveness with the leadership team. This capability, anchor, is about downward Influence. Let me read uh, from page 43. You write, capability creates and maintains a high-performing marketing team, makes assertive decisions about the team and agencies, and is a skillful situational leader who is supportive and helps talent feel valued and grow. And two pages later, you write, it surprises me how often the business strategy has not been translated into a marketing strategy with clear goals and outcomes that are regularly monitored. 
and Gareth, I thought I was taking crazy pills. Why do you think this is so prevalent? Um, it's sometimes just the way it come back to the first point, homeostasis, the way things get done. There is a business strategy and it then goes straight into tactics. And yes. it's like, hang on, how do, how do we go from that business strategy into these tactics, which we've always done? And it's like, whoa, we've just missed a massive chunk here. And, you know, we, we, we're not thinking objectively. And I think and that, that's sometimes just process because you've kind of gone through a, uh, a strategy process and you've you've kind of plugged the numbers in and you've just kind of you say well we do this but you haven't really thought about it you've just kind of plugged the numbers in we haven't stood back and thought well what how does this change our collectively okay this is if this is the business strategy what does it mean for our marketing strategy what does it mean for our customers what does it then mean to our channels and then what does it mean to our tactics and i think we sometimes just shortcutted and mm. in the in the rush of process, we go from business to tactics. We fill in the form, we put the numbers into our business review, and it's done. And then we're off and running. But we haven't really pulled back and had the proper discussions about what does this mean to our our channel strategy, our consumers. You know, it really, it really, and I think it is because of the process of of a kind of a planning process when you kind of go through those different stages and you end up pl- plugging the numbers in for the year end. <laughs> you kind of run it, you rush it, and then you and then you got to go backtrack it to go back into to the marketing strategy but it's just what happens and i think you know we you know we need to get this right because unless you've got that right it, it affects your team organizational de- design it affects your kpis um you know it affects you know which people you put in which seats and this whole anchor factor is around you know supportive uh skills so how do you develop and grow people but at the same time how are you gonna be assertive you know how are you going to raise the bar so that people perform every year which people are you going to back which people are going to put into those really challenging jobs you back that person you're going to put them to that job because that's going to help them grow and develop and it's you know a marketing strategy is so important to help you think about your people and, and who does what and what needs to change what needs to develop what are the kpis so but yeah you're right it, it just flips sometimes and i think it's all about process and budget processes Yes. So a business strategy without a marketing strategy is what they in the Army would call ready, fire, aim, which was really <laughs> discouraged in, in the Army, uh, at least when I was in. So let's jump to uh, H of anchor, and that's uh, headspace. And that means moves comfortably from using their left brain, full of data and detail, to their right, full of images, concepts, and connections, combines analytical skills with creative aptitude and flair, like we talked about earlier with uh, the bothism, the, the Mark Ritson quote. Let's see. I want to quote from Forrester's 2022 predictions report, which you have on page 52. Some with the CMO title will continue to be sidelined by the likes of another chief something officer. <laughs> relegated only to the subset of marketing involving brand and promotion, while elite CMOs, those with data, MarTech, customer experience, and product chops, will capitalize on this moment in time to duly expand their remit. So given that, is the modern marketing world becoming too biased uh, to analytics versus creativity? It seems like creativity may be getting left behind. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that, as I said, this anchor factor is about creativity on the left-hand side and analytics on the right-hand side. And actually, it's a balance of both worlds. I and mean, great marketers are in both worlds. And, you know, the creative side, inspirational leaps, oh, you, know, it's, it, it, you know, and ultimately, we know, you know, great creative – you know, award-winning creative is what drives um, is is one of the, is, is the most effective um, driver of sales. 
the fact is that we are getting more and more short-term focus and we're getting more and more data. Um, and I think we, we are getting drawn over to that right-hand side. And I think we've just got to balance it because we do need to be analytical and data-centric and accountable for what we do. But we've got to be inspirational and come up with creative flair and make leaps to drive the business forward. And it's trying to balance those two. Now, that, that Forrester's quote, I kind of put it in there because I, you know, we've got, so much changing in, say, technology right now. We've got AI, and any marketeer who's not leaning into AI uh, is kind of a fool, I think, because ultimately we know it's going to change so much. So there is a partnership to be held with tech to think about, well, how is this going to influence um, our world? And, you know, what is our what is our roadmap? And I think marketeers need to create these collaborations with with relevant teams if if you don't i think you end up going back to you know marketing as the coloring ink kit and i and i, and I don't mean that in a really disparaging way well, I kind of, actually it sounds terrible but it is but you know what i mean it's like marketeers um we need to connect with where the world's going with where with where consumers going with where tech's going so we have to engage and actually we've got to and and i personally would say i'm not especially strong on analytics i get it but i will work hard because i know it's really really important it's the area which, you know, which we've got to focus on in tech you know i am learning as best i can to be as coherent and understanding of that world because we have to we really need to and we need, need to embrace those worlds but not only that and this mark ritson has like a uh, a co-starring role in this interview because <laughs> he's he's the greatest at quotes and i should add that on LinkedIn, I don't know if you've discovered this, but you can click a button so that whenever somebody posts on LinkedIn, you'll you'll get a little notification. He's one of a very small number of marketing luminaries who, whenever he posts something on LinkedIn, I get a notification, and they're all just uh -huh. solid gold. He wrote, creativity drives so much of effectiveness, and we've all forgotten it in the last decade. We now need to remember it for the decade that comes. So let's talk about the O in Anchor. I hope the listener appreciates you know, how we're giving them little updates as, as to where we are. <laughs> let's see, page 59. That stands for output. It focuses, the two ends of the continuum are connection and conversion. Okay, so focuses on priority audiences and effectively manages the marketing activity throughout the marketing funnel. From building a connection higher up the funnel through to the conversion and retention lower down the funnel. And then, really interesting, and this is where we're going to start talking about this Gareth Helm guy again. On page 59, you write, in this diverse and changing world, there tends to be two types of marketing leaders. Those who become the leader by predominantly climbing the digital ladder with more of a focus on conversion and targeted personalized digital marketing on customers lower down the marketing funnel, or those who climb the brand ladder with a bias to connection and mass market brand higher up the funnel. This sometimes leads to the creation of two roles, the chief brand officer and the chief digital officer, or becomes unified under a chief marketing officer. The choice is dependent upon circumstances and the required balance of conversion of connection. So talk about your journey, Gareth, from the brand side to the digital side as it relates to this. Yeah, sure. So I kind of alluded to it earlier. So I started my career at Unilever. I was in Mars. I was in Nestle. So really classic brand 
So uh, very much on the era of connection, brand building, um, making a brand a destination, finding emotional connection. So really strongly in terms of how do I kind of build strong brand affinity and make people kind of want to come to my brand because of the the, uh, the, the high messages and driving awareness and consideration. Now, um, you know, I love that world and I, I did it for a long period of time, but I could see I was becoming a dinosaur. I just thought, hang on a minute. I am, as much as I've spent sort of 10 years in this stuff, I do not know enough about uh, digital marketing and about uh, lead generation um, through digital channels. And I actually made a choice in my career to give up everything I was doing on the kind of on these big brands. And I went into digital tech businesses and I joined a brand called Money Supermarket, uh, which is an aggregator in insurance and utility supplies and just soaked myself uh, in and everything to do with digital marketing. And that was a really pivotal change for me because if I hadn't have done that, I would have been very weak um, on this, on this uh, what I call conversion, which is lower down the funnel and all about optimization of digital channels. I made that choice. Um, having made that choice, I then went on and joined another uh, tech business um, uh, called Zoopla, which is a property business um, very similar to um, businesses in the US, so aggregator of, of properties. And again, at that point, I was a CMO, but I had then the balance of classic brand building, what I call connection, but I also had the, the strong conversion digital side to me as well. And I think having those two sides is really, really important. But the, the, the reality is you either come up one, or the, one side or the other. And actually, as you go through your career, you know, you find people who are junior um, uh, digital marketing managers and they're working their way up. As it's quite hard for them to move across the brand, and it's quite hard for brand people to move across to, to the kind of digital side. And it's so important to know both sides. But I think kind of, I, I say it to a lot of people: you've got to think about your skill set, and it's important to make some horizontal moves. And I I call these zigzag moves because you know you move across, you don't make any money. You know you, you might your salary might even go down um, because you've moved from one sector to another. But boy oh boy, that will that will kind of can escalate and accelerate your career in the long run because that horizontal move means you can jump two places further on because you suddenly got skills in brand skills in digital and you know a lot of these these anchor factors have these two areas and how do you learn both sides because the more you can get experience across both sides of these skills the stronger you are as a marketeer Yes, otherwise it seems to be really easy to get painted into a corner. And I can remember, I, this is said all the time, but I remember David Ogilvy's book, he talked about, this is you know, 30, 40 years ago, but he was talking about going into advertising. And he was saying, it's more in the beginning, it's more important what you learn than what you earn. And I would think through your even your, through your career, there were certain, as you say, horizontal moves you had to take where might have not have been a pay increase, but you were investing in your future. And I can't think of any marketer that's not going to have to do that. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And I think the, I just think don't don't chase the dollars, don't chase the dollars, chase the learning, chase the knowledge. And I think it will prove in the long run, it is invaluable. And I yes. think you've just got to make those those choices along the way and say, okay, I'm doing this to learn and grow as a marketeer. So finally, the R of Anchor is results. Results. You want to work here? Close. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Love it. The results, it's, it's either long-term, short-term, okay? And you write, vigilantly monitors performance in year. 
and responds with short-term initiatives to boost performance, looks for future revenue opportunities, and develops the long-term plan with key stakeholders. Talk about how the short-term, as you write, can become an increasing distraction. Well, I kind of think this this is the balance because um, ultimately we – all have got to get, you know, the, the, the we, we all look at our weekly, monthly sales, and it's important to try and hit those targets. And I think actually, as a marketer coming in, I think for you to have credibility, you need to show you're focused on it. You need to show you're focused on delivering these short-term numbers because, you know, once you get behind, it's very hard to kind of catch up. So, of course, everyone is focused upon it. Um, I think the reality we all know is that you can become consumed by the short-term, and the risk is you start ignoring the long-term strategy and you make short-term choices and you start kind of uh, mortgaging future years because you've kind of stolen sales in the future and pulled them into the short term so i think it's always a balancing act and i think the um for me as a marketeer of course you've got to jump on the short term and actually kind of make sure it's working but you've always got to have a, an eye on the long term and make sure you're not kind of say mortgaging the future or sacrificing the future and it's trying to find that balance i find at the moment many businesses and particularly in the climate we're in right now are getting very focused in the short term and hence why a lot of um, brand activity you know becomes it, it's less about kind of brand building it's much more lower down the funnel and about kind of converting people who are kind of already interested as opposed to awareness but you can get focused on that um, I've been working with a company recently who you know they've really ramped up the discounting and uh, because they're trying to hit the short term mm-hmm. but that's a drug and once you're on it, you've got to figure out a way off it. And it makes it harder in the long run to get back onto your long-term strategy. So you've, you know, you, you, you've got to consider the short term uh, and hit it, but you've just got to be careful you don't kind of sacrifice the long term. Yes, and you might be the only person at the company thinking about that. So keep that in mind. So let's try to wrap it up here. As you, you write on page 71, the, the six pairs of anchor factors that we just talked about can, can then be grouped into four marketing genres, which are a spot the word code. It's a, a, either a connector, operator, disruptor, or explorer. And every marketing leader and every role is going to have a little bit of each though. So it's not like you're going to be just exclusively one. What's important is to see if any areas are particularly high or low. So let's talk just briefly, if you could just sort of uh, stereotype maybe <laughs> some of the, the, the four different folks, like a, the connector. For instance, you talk about they tend to be in larger organizations. Explain Yeah, well, I think the kind of connector, um, connectors are really well networked. Uh, and they kind of know a lot of people, and they kind of are very good at good at. They're kind of politically savvy, mm-hmm. and they're very. And I don't mean that in a negative way because being politically savvy is a good thing. Well, they're also a good communicator, I would think. Oh yeah, but they kind of they work the C suite really well, mm-hmm. and they are well known in the business. They're connected well with the business, uh, so it's not just with your marketing team. It's with the C suite, the CEO. They are that connector, the person who kind of creates these. Um, are good relationships and kind of creates the clarion call for the business. They kind of they're the people who kind of help communicate things and help get everyone aligned. And and every business needs someone like this. You know, you need someone who is that connector who makes it all makes sense. So that is kind of the connector type type of person. It's all about unity, all about alignment, all about kind of making sure everyone's communicated to and everyone knows um, what we're trying to do. And you saw more of those kind of people like at Mars and McDonald's and Unilever. Yes, because I think the thing is that. In companies like Mars, McDonald's, 
there is tenure. People tend to be there for longer. And I think kind of, um, you know, when I was at McDonald's, the number of the, the, the C-suite, um, the executive team, had been there 20 years. And it was absolutely amazing. The relationships they got, the connections they got, and they had got a very clear way of working. And they had, you know, you, you, they almost knew how each other were going to work, work because they worked together so long. But they also, they worked the system because it's big companies. Mm-hmm. You need to connect and you can't go out on a limb. You have got to think about, you know, what's going on in the US, what's going on in Europe, how, do, how you, know, you can't just boldly go and do something. You have got to think about your, your, your sister uh, kind of companies and what they're doing. So really important to be a connector um, and actually making sure that you're working for the wider business. So I do think it de- generally does fall into bigger businesses, tend to have people who are much more operating like that because they know they've got to work in a matrix. They've got to work and they've got to work the whole matrix. They've got to work with people. So there is a style of person who tends to be in the bigger organizations who is an absolute connector. And then the operators, folks who maybe index a little bit more there, they you write that they tend to be a chief digital officer or a chief chief growth officer, and sure. where performance, lead acquisition, short-term results are key, which, I mean, all of these are good things. You're just It's just showing which uh, of the four quadrants you tend to have uh, yeah. more of. And that's a, and that's a um, you know, as I said, it's a genre. You know, you can be, you know, you, your strength might be, I'm a connector. This is what I'm really, this is my absolute preference. But some people will be operators. They're much more analytical. They're much more detailed, much more short-term. They love conversion. They love getting those sales. And, you know, they are on, on it in the short term. I mean, these are absolute scrappers who get things and make things happen, but they're kind of real operators who are kind of performance driven. Um, and I think they are, you know, that is a, a really good genre to have. Um, but there are differences. So, and we, every marketer needs a little bit of all of these. So you've got connector, you've got operator. And as I said, there's, there's two more. Yeah, the disruptor could be like a chief marketing officer in a startup or have a like a big uh, customer agenda and, or um, this may be where a lot of the chief customer officers are, as I, as I read. Yeah, sure. Because I mean, these people tend to be much more externally focused when I mean, the, the, these genres link back to the anchor factors, but you know, this is people who are assertive, they're challenging, they love change. They are externally focused and they're thinking about what's going on in the market. They're kind of very entrepreneurial and I guess they are, and they are adapting to what's going on. So they kind of see change happening and they adapt, they pivot. And, you know, again, a, a great genre to have and some businesses really need this so particularly in startups you see a lot of people with this sort of typology people who can pivot people who can change people who are assertive people who love you know as i said challenge so you know an absolute clear disruptor particularly in in startups but but that is quite often really craved by the big companies because they go like hang on we're operating like this we need a bit of that so (laughs) sometimes you know and, and that's fair game but it can be quite hard for a disruptor who is that's their key genre to drop into a world full of connectors. Right. That can be very hard to actually operate. So, you know, as I said, come back to the wheel, understand who you are. And actually, if you were a disruptor landing in a world of connectors, um, you're going to need the backing of your CEO because it could be quite hard work. And just have that open conversation, understand what it is, understand what you're letting yourself into, because it may not be your natural style. And if it's not your natural style, it will feel like damn hard work. Unless your CEO is very clearly saying, I am 110% behind you and I want you to do this and I get it and I'm with you. And that links into him wanting change. You know, him saying, I'm bringing you in for a reason. And going back to my first anchor factor of change versus consistency, it's him saying, 
I want change. I'm bringing you in to do this. I'm behind you. Yes. And this book could save companies a staggering amount of money. (laughs) You think about how much money is wasted hiring the wrong kind of people for the different role. So then the last one, which we already talked about, an explorer is uh, sort of the Gareth Helm type, Uh, (laughs) tends to have a brand or long-term strategy bias, and they can often end up being like a chief strategy officer or chief brand officer. So finally, uh, you write on page 97, if you have aspirations to be a future marketing leader, then the marketing leader's code will help you understand the true breadth of the job and map yourself against it. You'll have areas which are stronger or weaker, and you can think strategically about the moves you make so you gather the broader skills needed. And you've talked about how how you did that. But I think it's important that you make the point that developing these wider skills doesn't always need to mean changing companies. We don't all have to be like Gareth Helm and keep changing companies, right? No, you, know, you, don't, you don't. And it's like, I mean, in a sense, I, I chose that and it's almost like recognizing the roles and myself and what I wanted to do. But of course, you can grow in a role. And I think, you know, you can find opportunities to grow uh, and develop yourself. Um, and, in the, and in the book, I kind of, you know, you can map yourself, you can understand how your skills are. But also, if, for example, you're, you're weak in a particular area, I've kind of then put, it out, put down, here are eight things you can do. Here are eight things you can do to help develop that area. Just, just try them out. Just try out these areas and see if they work. Um, they're, re- they're, they're a mixture of really small things to quite big things, but it's almost like here is a selection of stuff. Now, this is not going to make you the, the number one performance marketeer in the world, but it gives you a few tips as the marketing leader as to how you could be better in a certain area. For example, it could be about... Um, uh, short-term versus long-term and some tips about how do you become more effective short-term, some things you could do which would demonstrate your skills better in their, that area. But I so said they're in the book. Yeah. And actually, if you do this, you could do an assessment online and actually kind of pumps out, here are some suggestions you could do um, just to help you um, think about what you could do differently. Right. And so you've, for instance, there's a section here towards the end, connector tactics. So... If you are not the connector type, I guess, these are some things you can start to do to build those muscles. Sure. Yeah, you, you don't just leave them hanging. You show them exactly some things they could they could be working on. Yeah, it's, it's just a selection of stuff. I and mean, what I, you know, and actually, as I said, I don't, these are not, these are, these, these are just like small tips you can do to help grow that muscle. But I think it's almost like the start of a journey. Yes. And actually, sometimes you might need to recruit somebody to really build up an area in a, in, in a team, but it gives you some hints. Uh, just so you can, as I said, start start over. Well, and you know, as I like to say, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. And these are things like uh, here's one list of of eight things that somebody could be doing. And I think what's more, even more important than doing these things is it gets them thinking. It gets them thinking in the right direction. That's my take, anyway. But hey, you know. So Gareth, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think just understand yourself. I think it's really important. Well, I'll do two things here. One, understand yourself if you're a CMO, and if you're a CEO or HRD, really understand the role and try and have the conversation with your CMO about it because I think transparency is everything. Get openness and transparency, and your life is easier. You could almost guarantee that. It's so true. So, Gareth, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? Oh, crikey. I, I mean, in, in, the, in this book, I think I've got about 30 books at the back where I've, I've kind of referenced in some way or other. But the nature of my background, I think the there are three books I reference. 
and you've probably heard them many times before. One is Adam Morgan, Challenger Brands, Eat, Eat Big Fish. Um, I find that really empowering and exciting because of the way it talks about light, lighthouse identity of brands. It's a classic Pepsi versus Coke, um, Virgin versus British Airways. I really like that type of marketing. I think the whole idea of strong purpose brands is really important. That's one. Everyone loves Byron Sharp. You've got to love Byron Sharp. Um, <laughs> I've used Byron Sharp so many times to kind of help me with my CEO and C-suite. And I think it's really useful. It's such good empirical data. And it's helped me, you know, get investment in and, and build really good case studies. And the last one to put down here is Daniel Kaufman and, and Fast and Slow, because for me, just understanding how consumers operate and think is just mega powerful and you know how do you engage their left and right brain and just thinking about that engagement is just so impact you know we've got to make life simple because we just filter out all the noise so we've got to make life simple so in fact he's just written noise as well which is another brilliant book oh, so right. um, mm -hmm. i love the stuff he does yes yes great recommendations there well are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading a book which is I've actually just ordered um, is not that new, but it's Nancy Klein, Time to Think. And the reason I'm putting it out there is I, I actually um, became a trained coach about a couple of years ago. I did the qualification and I just realized the power of coaching with every team is so important and how you can help bring your team on by coaching. But I think this book, what excites me about it is I think it just kind of trains you how to listen properly and by listening properly you can think better and i think any way to be able to think better is good and i think apparently it's just like a really beautifully written and it's just got some beautifully simple concepts but it means you can think better and any way you can think better is a good thing yeah, but I don't like to have to think, Gareth. I'm kidding. Time to Think, Listening to Ignite the Human Mind. That's from 1999. I did not know that one. That really looks good. Yeah, yeah. It's, it looks like, um, as I said, it's more linked into my coaching. It's a bit out of date, but I've, I've heard it mentioned by a number of people recently, which is why I've actually gone to go and buy it, because the people say, look, this is just awesome in terms of what it's doing, in terms of, you know, and I think at the main, we all know there's so much noise, and any way you can think better is a good thing. Absolutely. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, including all the books that you've mentioned, your website, sideminds.com, your LinkedIn profile, and so forth. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Gareth and congratulate him on this phenomenal book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you have a question, just reach out and ask it. I mean, he seems like a pretty nice guy. I, I think he'll actually answer your, your question. And don't pass up the opportunity for what's on his website where you can take these uh, assessments. And most of them are, I think most of them are uh, free, right? Free, yep, yep. Yeah. So guests on the show just love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, or they wouldn't tell me that. And uh, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode website link. The book is The Marketing Leader's Code, Unlock Your Potential, Learn the Secrets of Successful Marketing Leadership. The author is Gareth Helm. Gareth, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you. I've loved it. Great to talk to you. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.